Welcome to Engelberg Center Live, a collection of audio from events held by the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law. Today's episode is the Fake Art Panel from the Fake Symposium. It was recorded on September 22nd, 2022. Uh, I'm Barton Beebe, I teach here, and I'm the moderator of this panel, and I've been looking forward to this for like two and a half years, actually. Um, And my excitement has been increasing through the course of the day because maybe it was for a moment I was a bit like maybe how Amy and Winnie are able to see the world that I'm not, which is you were all talking about art, basically and issues that the art world has been struggling with not struggling and, and exploiting and making art out of for a good century now, uh, if not secretly before even then. Um, and so I think I will be sort of um, chauvinist about this panel and say that this is the culmination of the day is the uh, fake art panel. Um, also, it's such a pleasure to be on uh, this panel with Amy and Winnie. I'll just say a few quick words about them. Uh, Amy is the Emily Kempen Professor of Law here at NYU and is the leading art law scholar in the country. Um, I won't embarrass you too much by dwelling on that, but that's basically uh, the case. Uh, Winnie comes to us from the rhetoric department at Berkeley, the famous, at least in my little world, absolutely famous rhetoric department at Berkeley. Um, And she is the author of an absolute blockbuster uh, of a book. And I'm not using that, I'm not exaggerating. The title is, Van Gogh on Demand, China and the Ready-Made. Um, and you'll get a little taste of what the book is about uh, as we proceed through the course of this hour. Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, uh, the world it describes uh, that you'll hear about. So as I was, as I was listening, to, especially to the last panel, I thought the, the issues we'll cover um, really go to the heart of a lot of, of what we've talked about so far. So things like authenticity, fakeness, originality, copying, homage versus pastiche versus camp versus counterfeit versus knockoff versus replica, the original copy, the limited edition photograph, the fetishization of commodities or the defetishization, if you'll permit those sorts of somewhat more polysyllabic words, that is to say the repersonalization of commodities, mechanical reproduction versus, as Winnie will, uh, has mentioned in her book, manual uh, reproduction. All of those come to the fore, I think, in the art world, both uh, in the art world as you might imagine it, the Western North Atlantic art world, and also the developing Chinese uh, art world. Um, our agenda is basically because this is the first time I think that Winnie and Amy have ever been on the same panel together. So that's a big, no, oh, oh, I was gonna claim some big accomplishment for NYU. Okay, well. Um, the, Amy will, will start with a bit of a presentation about um, the Hall of Mirrors, that is the issue of authenticity in uh, the, the art world. And then uh, we'll have a little bit of uh, conversation about that. And then we'll shift to Winnie's, uh, Winnie's uh, talk on Dafen Village in China. And uh, I'll, start, I'll finish with this, this one quotation from the latest edition of Amy's extraordinary paper on authenticity. And it's, it's this lovely question, which really, I think, captured for me a lot of what we were just talking about, or more generally with the fake. Uh, quote, what is the mysterious mechanism that creates value in a world of unfettered mechanical and digital reproduction? Um, and, I, unquote. and I think that, that sort of brings to the fore a little bit of what we might end up talking about. Oh, God. Thank you. Is this thing on? Oh, thank you. And I think I need the, the yeah, the clicker. Okay, let's swap with you. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so, so what's real and what's fake, what's original, what's a copy? The roughly $66 billion a year soaring market in art depends on being able to cleanly resolve these questions. But the truth is that authenticity, which is the bedrock of this market, has always been a very fragile concept. And in my work, I'm thinking about how it's become much more so in light of contemporary art. So we always knew that authenticity was trouble and um, fake art haunts the art market like a specter. And I'll just give a few examples of how um, extremely difficult this concept is. By the way, that's a fake Motherwell um, that was the subject of a lawsuit. And one of my former students litigated this case and brought that painting to my class. It had sold for millions of dollars. Um, hmm. um, there's so many scandals that we're familiar with. This was recently in June when um, a blockbuster show at the Orlando Museum of Art of newly discovered Basquiat's was shut down by the FBI um, that carted away the art, fakes. We still don't know, but I'm, it's pretty clear they're fakes. Um, or this painting, one of 32 fakes sold by the oldest gallery in New York, the Nodler Gallery, that was shut down in the wake of a scandal revealing that all of these paintings um, which had tricked so many connoisseurs, although not all, I'm told from some connoisseurs they knew what was going on but couldn't speak up, um, fooled so many connoisseurs that these paintings attributed to modern masters, uh, and this one to, Roth to Rothko, obviously, were actually painted by this artist who got about five to $8,000 per painting, who was painting in a basement in Queens, acting for a bunch of nefarious actors. He has since escaped to China and maybe Maybe Winnie can help us find him someday. Um, but I, I do want to say something, which is this painting, and, and these were considered to be previously unseen masterworks. Um, this painting, uh, when one critic saw it, he, he called it sublime. He raved about how beautiful it was. But once it was discovered to be the work of, of Peishan Kwan, the, am I saying that right? Tian Peishan. Oh my God, I've got it all wrong. Okay, <laughs> forgive me. Um, once it was revealed to be the work of the forger or the artist, we'll see what we, we think of him. Um, then its value went from sublime and $8.5 million worth of it to nothing, it's unsellable. And it raises this question that has uh, persisted throughout the philosophy of uh, aesthetics and, and the history of art. If something looks exactly, the, the problem of the perfect copy um, or, or this division between authentic and, and fake, why if something looks the same, if it's beautiful, if it's sublime, why do we not value it as we once did? Now, traditionally, um, we resolved questions around what's real or fake here. Um, by, by relying primarily in the art world, there's called a three-legged stool of authenticity. There's connoisseurship, um, and that's by far the most important part of it. There's also questions of provenance, sometimes scientific evidence, but the connoisseur, by far the most important, um, is also in some ways very much mysterious. And so connoisseurs make mistakes as we see, but it's very hard to pin down how a connoisseur knows what he or she knows. And, and really the connoisseur only knows um, whether something's real or fake by years of looking, by having ability to see a work that 
few of us will ever have because of that capacity to um, to compare it against a huge encyclopedic digest of the artist's work. Um, so for example, there's this famous story of uh, the connoisseur James McNeil Whistler, who was shown a Velasquez, an expert in Velasquez, and was shown a Velasquez and um, sort of dismissed it with bar barely glancing at it, said no. And, and people rushed to him and said, how can you know it's not a Velasquez? You barely looked at it. And he answered, I always swoon when I see a Velasquez, <laughs> you know, and, and as funny as it sounds, I bet it's true. You know, I've heard this again and again. It's a tingle on the tongue or it's something you just, you know, of course you make mistakes too. So in, in this way, authenticity has always been troubled, but it's a lot more difficult now in terms of contemporary art. And I'm going to be talking a little bit. I've, I've written two articles on authenticity and Barton very kindly mentioned my new one, but just to give some context and the relevance to intellectual property law, Will you tell me when I'm done with time? Yeah, sure. Okay, I have no idea. I forgot to say my 10 more minutes. Okay, so um, earlier work, uh, I wrote a, a piece called Why Art Does Not Need Copyright, in which I argued that authenticity did all the work of sorting valuable from um, worthless copies in the art market, such that it rendered copyright law not only superfluous, but actually um, an impediment to creativity in that market. I won't be talking about that, but the paper I'm, I've written now is a follow-on paper to that one, in which I ask, given the centrality of authenticity to the art market, what are its principles? Can it be codified and reduced to predictable factors such that courts can depend on it, or um, art market participants can depend on it, making multi-million dollar decisions. And the answer that I've come up with is that art, um, that authenticity is actually fake, um, that it is far more unstable than we could ever know, um, or that even these problems around connoisseurship might reveal, um, that it's protean, contested, arbitrary, um, and often a mutually agreed upon ruse and nothing more. Um, and I think this is particularly so in contemporary art because so much of contemporary art has now taken as its subject matter, the very questions that are the subject of this conference. What's real and what's fake? What's the difference between an original and a copy, especially in a world of unfettered mechanical and digital reproduction? How do we know, what, what do we value? Art artists have been thinking about this for at least 100 years, but, but um, with great focus in the last, I don't know, 60 or so. And in doing so, they've created work that, that makes these kinds of determinations, um, in my view, ultimately impossible, or at least extremely precarious. Um, and, and increasingly, they're important. Um, if soon we're all gonna be able to have a perfect copy, um, then, uh, you know, not just digital works, but even virtuoso works as well, because of 3D printing, we can do that. Then what is it we're looking for? Why are we craving authenticity? Why is it worth so many millions of dollars? And why are we still willing to put that down given the way in which it can fluctuate, as I'll show with a few examples. Um, so um, I'm just going to pick a few examples from my paper about how authenticity can fluctuate and has become increasingly a philosophical question in the art market. Um, and I'll start with, oops, there's the, the name I can't pronounce. Um, 
I'll start with this work by the artist Katie Noland, um, and it was from a case called Jankuvi, Katie Noland and Sotheby's, involving her work, um, Cowboys Milking, which you see here, it's a silkscreen on aluminum that she produced in 1990. Katie Noland is the most expensive living um, American artist at auction. No, mm -hmm. she's the most expensive living woman American artist at auction. She's still dwarfed by men, but that we can make that a different topic, um, how much men outsell women in the art market. But she is a very important artist in terms of price, and I think in, in from many different ways of assessing. Um, her record is about like a little under 10 million. So she went to see this work of art at Sotheby's shortly before it was to be auctioned. It was owned by this collector called Jean Coup. And when she went to Sotheby's shortly before the auction, she did not like the condition the work was in. It had been bent and it had been restored. Um, now a respected conservator said the work was in very good condition, but Nolan said, I no longer think of this as my work. This is no longer a Katie Nolan work. And Sotheby's withdrew it from auction and it is now untouchable and unsellable in the art market, which, which depends entirely on um, on authenticity by de she, by disavowing it, she de-authenticated it. She claimed she had the right to do this under moral rights law, a portion of copyright law. I don't think she did. I we can talk about the details of how moral rights law works in this case. I don't think she did, but the legal niceties were totally beside the point because once Katie Nolan said, it's not my work, even though it was, right, it was a little bit damaged, but it's it's clearly her work. Once she said it's not my work, it, it lost all of its value. And um, we could ask, why is authenticity so fragile? Why is it so subject to fluctuate in, in a case like this where we all know it's a real but damaged Katie Nolan, which would be worth something? Um, and part of this has to do with the custom in the art market of absolute deference to an artist's word. Whatever the artist says goes, this is a longstanding custom, but part of it also has to do with the really um, fragile nature, and I don't mean physically fragile, the fragile nature of authenticity in contemporary art. So if we go to this and think about um, Duchamp, Ever since artists like Duchamp sort of switched art from being something inherent in an object to something that an artist um, created by declaring it as such, declaring this urinal to be a work of art, mm. um, then art that was something um, extrinsic to the object and something that um, became, something could become art by fiat. But if an artist can transform a lowly object into, in this case, one of the greatest works of art of the 20th century, then so uh, I think the corollary is that an artist can transform a work of art back into a lowly object. You can make it fake by fiat. Um, that this is um, built into that instability in, in contemporary art, which is no longer work produced as with the Rothko, supposedly by an artist's hand. Uh, I won't talk about this, but this is a, a Rauschenberg example of that same kind of declaration creating the work. Um, a subsequent case involving Katie Noland um, illustrates this as well. This is her work, um, Log Cabin Facade, which she disavowed in 2017. She had reason to do it. Um, the work was decaying. It had been left outside. The collector hadn't cared for it. A uh, restorer had come in and 
um, restored the work by completely refabricating it using the same logs from a Montana manufacturer that Katie Noland had actually had the work produced by in the first place. She didn't touch the work. She's the author of the work without touching it. She commissioned it from a commercial manufacturer. And litigation went on and on for years, intellectual property litigation, the copyright, there was a pesky problem. The, uh, the copyright office had decided that this work was not copyrightable. Katie Nolan's lawyer said, of course, the copyright office doesn't understand contemporary art. But I actually think the copyright office was completely right. Contemporary art has nothing to do with whether its value has nothing to do with whether it's copyrightable. It has everything to do with authenticity, which in this case has to do with what the artist thinks and what the artist thinks about, um, in this case, refabrication. In any event, years and years of litigation, Katie Noland ultimately lost after I think a third round. Um, but you know, even if she lost in a court of law, she won in the court of art because as soon as she saw this refabrication, she faxed the collector this, uh, these words, this is not an artwork. And at that moment, she had basically, regardless of its physical status, regardless of its legal status, she had reduced log cabin to nothing more than a pile of sticks. It was done. Um, I'll talk about one more. Oh, you know, this made, I was thinking of Plutarch as we were talking before about restoration. I won't dwell on it, but I think it's really just to give you a sense, if you look at that line, it's this age old question. You know, what, what does it mean to, to recreate? And, and anyway, it's a, it's a deep question, but I won't dwell on it all. I think it was reminded me so much of some of the stuff that came up in the previous panel. I'll just say a last word. How's, how am I doing on time? I could stop. Three more, Three more minutes. Okay, so this is a case involving um, a collector who sued Dan Flavin based on the loss of a certificate that the collector had. Dan Flavin's work, as I'm sure you know, you've seen it glowing in museums everywhere, is, consists of basically unaltered um, fluorescent light bulbs. Um, what makes the difference between a real Dan Flavin and a fluorescent light bulb you or I could go lean on the wall in our um, apartments? Uh, this, a certificate of authenticity issued by Dan Flavin when he was alive and now at the estate. What happens if you lose your certificate of authenticity but you still have your sculpture? This was the question uh, at the heart of a lawsuit brought by uh, Steve Sussman, the lawyer of Sussman Godfrey against the Dan Flavin estate. Um, he had his sculpture, but somehow he had lost the certificate of authenticity and he said, give me a new one. And the estate said, what, if you lost a painting, would we, would we paint you another one? No, you lost it. You've lost the work of art, essentially. It's gone. He took, Sussman took the work to Sotheby's and said, would you um, sell this for me? And Sotheby's said, no, you've only got a pile of light bulbs now. You don't, your million dollar sculpture, the record for, for Flavin is I think around $3 million. Your, your million dollar sculpture is now just fluorescent light bulbs. We, we can't help you. Um, and Sussman, um, after, after losing his negotiations, sued the, the Flavin estate by this point and um, the case settled with him still at, you know, having, as far as we knew, worthless light bulbs, no certificate. So this haunted me. What happened to Sussman's sculpture, this once real sculpture that was now worthless and fake, but still looked exactly the same. What happened to it? And I had a research assistant. I was, I was um, 
I couldn't give up. And I think I found it. I think I found the sculpture. In fact, I, I'm, I know I found it. The same, <laughs> the same year that this case settled, um, uh, Sussman donated to the Yale Art Gallery a Flavin sculpture that matches exactly the description of the certificate of authenticity. And here they are side by side. So you can see. And, um, I, you know, there are many dimensions illustrating the instability of authenticity in this story, but a further one we can see is not just the loss of the certificate or the relationship <clears throat> to the work. And by the way, I write about certificates as related to NFTs in, in my paper too. Um, but also the way a work of art can be authentic in one setting and here, in this case, the institutional setting of a museum and inauthentic in another, the um, realm of the market. So I'll stop there because um, I wanna hear what Winnie has to say. So maybe I'll actually um, follow up with just a few quick questions. Uh, the first one is, it's more of a comment that uh, and this is a bit sensationalist on my part, but I was shocked to read in your paper that many museums will now use display copies uh, to replace the original. The original will be kept downstairs in the vaults and all the American tourists who are there are looking at a fake. <laughs> and does it, does it say on the side that it's a display copy or they just sort of leave that? Yeah, it's usually not because it's in the vault, but rather because it's owned by another museum um, and it's too difficult to transport it, for example or not worth it. Um, it, it. You have to know what you're looking for. It'll usually be sort of tucked discreetly into the wall text, you know, exhibition copy. That's but they're, they're re it's really interesting how often we'll see, particularly with contemporary art that, you know, why recreate, a, a, I'm trying to think, a log cabin, maybe yeah. it would be hard to transport. Why don't we just buy a log cabin from the manufacturer and show it? Um, yeah. This is the case. And then one last question that sort of is in a transition to, to Winnie's talk. And that is that I think what separates a lot of these stories is that they are essentially one-off editions of a commodity. They are original copies of a commodity that is coming in exactly one copy. Um, and so what I've always wondered as basically a trademark, mm -hmm. with the exceptional limited edition limited photographs, editions, and, yeah. <laughs> um, as a trademark person mm -hmm. at heart, I've always wondered how the, the, the logic, the weird through the looking glass logic of this world translates, if at all, into mass-produced mm. uh, objects. And that goes a little to the theme of last, uh, last hour, or last, mm -hmm. last panel. Um, it seems like for the, the swells who can afford, you know, the super yachts and the space travel and the uh, North Atlantic art world's artworks, they can distinguish themselves in this way. The rest of us are relegated to the worlds of I don't know, Chanel and Tiffany <laughs> and whatever else. And I've always thought based on my own back on Ford versus Chevy trucks, these are all forms of distinction uh, that the rest of us have to put up with. And yet the logic sometimes seems to be the same and sometimes, sometimes different um, in terms of investing mass-produced objects with some sort of aura of uh, notice. And so I don't know if there's any way to connect the two worlds. And so, so far, I thought maybe we could do this for the full hour, but I'm gonna break the spell and mention Andy Warhol. Yes. And say that, <laughs> um, I love there's an anecdote in your paper 
sometimes you didn't know if he was signing a work just as he would sign an autograph. Mm -hmm. Like he wasn't actually blessing it like a saint. Like he was just <laughs> signing it like he would sign a postcard or something like that. And it brings to Katie Nolan brings to mind the Picasso SNL skit from the old days oh. where he's drunk and he's paying for dinner by just signing things, you know, and giving his <laughs> So anyway, the I don't know how this translates to a thousand copies or a million copies. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that I think Dan, one of the reasons Dan Flavin's such an important artist is that he was thinking about these questions about mass production. Mm -hmm. He was thinking about, we can all go get fluorescent light bulbs. They're at the hardware store. What is What can I do that will distinguish um, you know, what do we make of replication? What what can art be in an era of um, mass production? And so he he was, I don't think he was exploiting the market for this as we may see people doing now. I think he was really investigating these very deep questions. I, I would add that about the display copies and exhibition copies, you know, so much of this does go back to Duchamp, yeah. you know, and he did, sorry, so much of this goes back to Duchamp. And I think um, in a way, you know, Duchamp was really messing with the art market and with the museum institution. And the fact that we have this very fragile situation, I think he'd be pretty happy about this. I mean, he put into motion exactly all of these things. And if we're gonna take it this seriously and put that much value on it, I think he, you know, he succeeded in altering what art can or cannot be, right? Or the fact that it can be so fragile. Um, for for mine, you know, it's so funny after listening to the last panel and, and to you, Amy, I think that in the end, I'm going to be saying that we do actually know what authenticity is. We, it's just too embarrassing to admit it. Um, and we, despite all of this complexity at the end of the day, we know in our heart of hearts, we just, you know, the, the fact of it is just really, really simple. You know, it's our faith in this kind of mythology and the mythology always has the same elements. It's probably French, it's probably white, it's probably elite, um, it's probably handmade, it's probably precious. We like to believe these things, even when faced with the obvious counter example. And then, I mean, I think this is why stories of forgeries, um, especially the forger is Chinese, um, is extra embarrassing because all mm. of those elements mm. um, of, of, of power, mm -hmm. of a history of power mm -hmm. are, are reversed. And this is mm -hmm. what the stories of forgers tell us. Um, so, and, and that's why we also love forgers, you know, at the end of the day, because we know there's a kernel of authenticity still there and we will then turn them into great artists, right? Um, that's why we want to pronounce his name and find him because we will, we want to turn him into an artist somewhere in there. And I think the story, um, I think that's the story I'm gonna, I ended up kind of coming to myself. Um, so the, um, China has come up, I think in the previous panel as well. And if France is one, spectrum um, of authenticity, then China is at the other end. Um, and, you know, authenticity has been the source of anxiety for a long time in European culture. And I'll give you this, it's too small for you to read. I'll see if I can. Um, it's a quote from Goethe from 1797. And he wrote, 
um, this is a translation, there is now to be a great painting factory in which they tell us, we don't know who the day is, right? They intend to copy any painting rapidly, cheaply, and indistinguishably from the original by means of totally mechanical operations, such as any child can be employed to perform. If this comes to pass, and of course, only the eyes of the common herd will be deceived. And it's amazing how much the structure of the imagination of fakeness was is already there. Like when we say the handbags come from the same factory, they just did a different shift. This is precisely the same um, anxiety, right? But we don't know, have we been to the factory where this is happening? Um, so in 2005, six, um, there was such news and uh, you see that I, I kind of jazzed up the New York Times um, microfilm. Um, there was this uh, headline, own original copies, no, own original Chinese copies of real Western art. Mm -hmm. And um, you can always tell there's something um, anxious when the headlines have to be ironic, right? That they're the only mode of reception is irony for truth. Um, so there's this news, there is a factory in China producing millions of real Western art by Chinese peasants. Um, and the news got bigger. Um, uh, this is a photojournalist um, uh, who won the World Press Photo Awards for a series of photos of this um, Van Gogh painter. Um, and then more spectacular was this um, series of documentary photos of hundreds of um, photographs by then the chief uh, photographer for Stern Magazine for many, many years, for decades. Um, and what these, for those, you know, at the time, 2006, these were not just Mona Lisa's and Van Gogh's. They were not just, you know, sunflowers. These were the most up-to-date most sort of most up-to-date contemporary art paintings that in 2006 people would have considered, you know, cool. And the idea that there would be single forgers in a village in China every day producing Gerhard Richter just seemed like impossible. If you read my book, I'll I explain how all of these photographs were staged. Um, but it didn't matter. It doesn't matter even now, even after I said they were staged, the photographer went on explaining that they were authentic. Um, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, and really, so I, um, I went to Daffin Village um, to ask for myself, you know, what's going on. Um, Daffin Village is uh, located in Shenzhen which you probably know better as the home of Foxconn and Huawei and Tencent and FTX. And really a cooler reason to go there is the counterfeit um, malls. Um, you will, the previous panel colleagues, you would love to see these counterfeit malls that have been going on for since the 1980s. Um, yeah, and just so you're aware that Dauphin Village, this is what it looked like in around 2008 when I um, did most of my research, it's no more rural than like the village, right? Um, and, uh, and in the center there, you will you see this uh, Museum of Art um, in the middle. And, and, you know, this was really spectacular. Why did this place that makes the world's reproduction need to make a museum? Um, what is the function of, a, of an institution like that? 
So, um, so in general, I mean, you know, how true is the journalism about China? My answer is not very. Um, and really, it's not that it's not true. It's not that it's false. It's that it often misses very crucial pieces of context of both the Chinese context and the American context or the Western tradition. Um, and so I'm, I've never done this from my work. I, I try to always make it more complicated. So today I try to make it more simple. <laughs> and um, I would just like to dispel your notions about that headline that I think even without reading the New York Times article, you could imagine what it meant. Um, so are there really painting factories? Um, not really. <laughs> um, so everywhere I went, I kept saying, please, where are the factories? Where are the factories? And everyone would say, oh, it was so long ago. They're all gone somewhere else. So I kept searching and searching, searching for factories. And I finally, you know, I went to many places where the bosses said, I run a factory. Um, and so I, I did do a survey of self-described factories. And, you know, what are the results of my um, survey? It's that in almost all cases, just like with any independent um, painter, they were all painters were paid by piecework, meaning they were paid per piece, which is how artists are paid now. <laughs> I mean, in any context. Um, so always, even in a factory, um, painters were paid by the piece. Um, sometimes I found a division of labor. Sometimes I found a separation of tasks. Sometimes I found a single central work space. Sometimes I found a control of materials. Once or twice, I found a clock. Once or twice, um, I found a, a time shift. And once or twice, I found managers. Um, and these are self-described factories, right? So the vast majority of the production happened in so-called workshops, which we might translate as studios of one painter and maybe his girlfriend. Um, <laughs> who always paints the backgrounds. And even in this <laughs> one factory, we, we could do a whole gender and authenticity. Um, even in this one factory that insisted we are a factory, I even have a night shift. Um, we, it was two stories. Um, what they did there was paint every painting from beginning to end by the same painter. And this line painted from beginning to end by a single painter, was the code for authenticity because um, bosses and dealers know that Westerners come and say, oh, is this a factory? This is like a fake painting, right? This is a factory. And they would say, oh, no, no, no. It's painted from beginning to end by a single painter. And I would just ask you, is that, isn't that sufficient for a definition of authenticity? And if it's not, why isn't it? And so is it the workplace that matters? Is it the space that matters? Is it, what are the, you know, there's many other elements, right? So um, do they really paint in assembly lines, right? Yes, um, when, um, when it's called for, right? Um, so that by assembly line, I think we can define as a division of labor and a separation of tasks. Um, uh, performed over multiple paintings for a, at a high volume. Okay, now it's possible for two people to be an assembly line and it's possible for the assembly line to take up the space of a studio, of an art studio, right? So um, here is a painter and his apprentice um, doing four paintings at a time. 
And um, these are some of the paintings drying. They are filling an annual order of thousands of paintings of in the subject of the four seasons. So spring, autumn, winter, summer. Um, and they did this, he was this master or this teacher was doing it every year for, for about at least a decade. Um, so here's a just quick video of them doing some yeah. part of it. Um, and I just want you to notice that this assembly line consists of only two mm -hmm. people. Um, there is a separation of tasks. They rotate around each other. One person does the orange, and then one person will do the yellow. Excuse my poor camera work. And then um, it's true that the um, teacher will take on the more difficult um, tasks at, at the end, uh, do some detailing. Probably um, not. But notice but... too that after about um, filling okay. one- I actually the don't know my title. The apprentice would be able to do this on his own. Notice too that the painter himself could do this if his apprentice wasn't around that day and didn't wanna, didn't wanna work. Um, so you can easily imagine how um, a painter and his girlfriend um, could form an assembly line. Um, uh, and okay, uh, so okay. are they copying from Western masterpieces? Um, so here's uh, a little bookstore in Daffin Village. Um, as you can see, it functions more like a library. It has um, exhibition catalogs, auction catalogs, museum catalogs. And um, really they were, by the time I was doing my research, more like a relic because most people would get um, images from the internet. So you would get, you would more likely paint from the JPEG on your phone than you would um, from um, a reproduction. But this is just to say that um, we all inhabit a world of reproductions in which the authentic data, the, what in museum practice we call tombstone data, does not follow the photograph. And I would challenge any, none of the painters know, but I would challenge any of us to know when you see an image, do you know what painting that is and what museum it is physically mm -hmm. in? And I think that for even most art historians could only do that for about a hundred paintings, <laughs> you know, not all the ones that we all live with. Um, so, yeah, so are they painting from Western masterpieces? Well, they haven't ever seen an original painting, but have you? You know, and under what circumstances would we physically have an original in front of us to? paint from. And I, you know, I asked you in the counterfeit handbag situation, it, it's quite similar. How often do we really get the chance to compare a real handbag with a, an authorized, I'll say, from a counterfeit? Um, we rarely have that opportunity. And so how much imagination is going on? How am I on time? Okay, good. Um, so sweatshop conditions, aren't they forced by an author authoritarian state or factory, uh, global capitalism, neoliberalism um, <laughs> to work in these horrible sweatshop conditions? So um, there was there is one painter who's been painting for 30 years in this space, lives and works in this space. And yes, I have great sympathy for his working conditions and his life. Um, he um, produces this type of painting for over 30 years. On the right is a painting of his from about the 1990s. And on the left is the sort of fresher one. Um, and, you know, this is a painter who probably does, he does work in assembly line with one or two apprentices and he does fulfill orders in the hundreds. Um, and he has the lowest piece rate of anyone that I um, met. Um, and 
and these are his working conditions. And the the um, the, the paintings themselves you might recognize um, because they were popularized in the United States by Bob Ross in The Joy of Painting. Um, and, you know, this is a struggling artist whose um, yeah, subject is in a way the, the joy of painting. Um, I also followed one, um, you know, do, do these artists then get to express themselves? How, are you not a true artist unless you get to express yourself, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, there's a, a boss dealer, actually an artist in Los Angeles whose work I follow for many years. And um, the details aside, at one point, one of our friends in Dauphin decided to um, create a factory to produce this artist's work in Los Angeles. And here on the left is the factory. It had 12 painters or so, at I think the highest point. Um, producing for um, this artist in Los Angeles, but they couldn't produce enough or fast enough. And actually all of us put together, we kept searching for more and more artists um, to help on his, because his work was selling so well um, and we just couldn't get enough people. <laughs> and finally this artist in LA got so frustrated. He started a studio workshop factory in Los Angeles. And that is the one on the right. It employed four painters. And when I went to visit, I saw no physical difference between a, a LA studio and a or factory workshop or a Dauphin one. And who were these painters? There were four painters, um, two from Europe, two from other parts of the United States. They had ideas, they wanted to express themselves. They went to LA to realize their dreams and they were also working during the day. Um, so when we think that the Dauphin painters are kind of in a very, very special condition, I would just, ask what do we expect are the conditions of artists here? Um, what condition do we believe most of them work in? Um, uh, so isn't the Chinese government promoting creativity and intellectual property rights? Yes, with ascension to WTO, Daphne Village became a model village, a model copyright village actually. Um, and so at, in the 2006 first International Cultural Industry Fair, um, the uh, local government did assemble 100 painters to copy a single painting, but then they assembled 1,100 painters to produce um, original paintings. And this is uh, a uh, you know, photograph of the very festive event. And you know, this raises the question, what is, what is an original then? Um, they did also pass out books about copyright law. You can imagine how often people read them. Um, so are these ultimately perfect forgeries that fool the world's consumers, right? Um, so if you go to, I'm in a few years, but if you go to Amsterdam and you walk between the Van Gogh Museum and the Rijksmuseum, they actually, I think it's actually called, the sidewalk is called the Museum Walk, I think. If you walk there about halfway, you will encounter a souvenir store run by this um, very kind gentleman, Gerhard Weiler. And he sells um, Van Gogh paintings direct from the workshop of um, Zhao Xiaoyong, who is the subject of that World Press photo um, photograph, and also my teacher for a short amount of time. And um, these paintings are sold at this size of paintings are sold for about 50 euros. And so you might ask by the time you've walked between the Van Gogh Museum and the Rijksmuseum and possibly gone inside to see a few things, 
and you encounter the souvenir store after you see the posters and the postcards, are you fooled? And if you are fooled, what are you fooled by? Um, and if you're not fooled, why would you buy that? <laughs> what are you buying? Um, and of course, one thing um, you might have encountered before the Souvenir Museum is that in the Van Gogh Museum, you in the museum store, you can buy prints on demand, hand printed um, with inks that last 100 years from the Netherlands, the masterpieces of Van Gogh. Um, for your living room for about 200 something euros framed. And I think this is where authenticity returns even for me, you know, which in the end is more fake than the printed on demand from the museum shop or the hand painted oil on canvas work from my teacher Zhao Xiaoyong in Daffin Village sold by Gerhard Weiler for 50 euros, right? I think we know what it is and it, we would be embarrassed, right? I'll, I'll end there. <laughs> so I'll start looking for questions or comments. Oh, great. So I think uh, I won't say anything. We'll just go straight to comments or questions. Yes. I have a question about the uh, Dan Clayton. I happen to know something about this artist and you're a fan of it. Um, so the, the original work that you showed was on the diagonal. Yeah. A single like. And then later on you showed what I think you were saying was the same work of art, not okay. No. That was presented to Yale and it was a different work of art. Yes, it had a single yellow ball in the middle, but it had red and blue. Yes, yeah, sorry for the the slides were confusing. Sorry, that was there was there were two different works of art. Oh, okay. <laughs> Other uh, questions or because well, while you're oh yeah, please go ahead. Thank you. Um, your your talk really got my mind running and um, to Coons really because Coons builds his workshops in factories. Um, I mean, he built his sculptures in factories. We call them workshops. It's kind of a, a light way to put it. Um, but really what separates his style of making art from, from the claims of how art is made in China, um, especially because Kunz is an appropriation artist and he, cre he creates large sculptures from images um, that he found that other artists made. So I, I guess it, the question is, why is it so different to us? Why, why are we so ready to recognize what Kuhn's does as art, whereas what's done in China as a forgery. Um, I think the key there is Warhol. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, um, in fact, I talked a lot with um, Daffin painters turned dealers. So at some point, as a painter, you realize I'm not really going to make that much money <laughs> like this. <laughs> and I'm tired of painting. Um, so the successful painters become, I call them boss dealers. Um, and the boss dealers who were once painters are your Warhols. Um, they, and they know Warhol very well, and they speak about Warhol. And, and when I you know, present to them different conceptual art, contemporary art strategies, they often would say, yes, those are wonderful marketing strategies. You know? And yeah, you can also call them art, but they're actually you know, great, great marketing ideas. And that's, that's what we do. So I, I, yeah, I, I think that our, our artist figure 
has become more um, expansive than what is actually allowed within that ecosystem. And, um, you know, you just have to drive an hour or a kilometer outside of Daffin Village, and this is all very laughable, right? Like a, a real artist understands that and understands that you then act as Warhol, right? And something else. Um, and I think that's the real, that is also why we could feel very empathetic to their situation. And you, you have, um, in the book itself, you have these very rich sort of ethnographic accounts of these conceptual artists showing up and doing conceptual art with the, with the local uh, tribe. And I was just, I wonder like, is do you I was trying to figure out so what is her judgment of this is she like thinking this is bad or good or you know so I'll ask you like I, I was looking for is is there a tone of slight I, condescension I or irony what, or I wonder what Amy thinks okay. about that because I, I didn't explain this here but the way I decided to approach my book was by the time Daphne Village was in the New York Times you can be sure contemporary artists knew about it. And so as, as I went to do my research, so did contemporary artists go to make art with this very interesting situation. So my book is actually filled with these encounters between these real conceptual artists, contemporary artists, and these painters. And I've never asked Amy what she thinks of those, that situation. Oh God, honestly. Um, I think it makes conceptual artists, I think your do I say this? I think it makes them look slightly silly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and yet I could think of your book itself as a kind of conceptual yeah. art project. So, yeah. so, and you know, so I don't mean, but there's yeah. something about them like, yeah, yeah. I, I've always but, found that. But reaction. like when we talk about Dan Flavin or, you know, they yeah. also seem a little silly. I mean, it seems a little absurd. I mean, they have a lot more power. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, Katie Nolan. And again, I love her work, but what is it? Like hiring someone else to make the work? And that's, that's you know, so it's not just, is that a factory? Or it's, it's not somebody else's the factory. She's phoning it in, I think, which is Warhol's. Again, the Warhol game is like, I'm going to make art by telephone, or at least so he claims. Ask my assistant. In my, right, ask my assistant. I'm not, I'm not getting my hands dirty. And I think one in... in I won't go on about Coons because I want to hear more about what you think of the what you think of the conceptual artists because your book is neutral, but they do end up looking they look um, silly. They look silly because when you put it on the same platform, mm -hmm. I think we still believe that the hand painted worker in his garret is more esteemable yeah. for some reason. Like we esteemable. more respectable, more. I think even though we don't, we aren't supposed to believe that. I, I don't know how we get over. And even though he's painting someone else's painting, there's still something, there's some spark of creativity um, that that he's bringing to his copy because it's that hand. Yeah. Which we think when you phone it in, you're not doing? Yeah, I think so. I, I, Chris and then Jessica have questions. I, I just think that we attribute authenticity to, it's a battle of who's authentic and it's the local artist, not the European flying in. So, I'm interested in a bunch of things, but one is like, why this village? Another is, you know, is the culture of this village distinct from the people around it? But I wanted to ask this question about authenticity for, for both of you, which is, um, there's a famous copyright case where someone copies a public domain painting 
and they, they copy it not in another painting, they make a mezzotint, right? Which involves, it's a different medium, so it involves some decisions about how to render the painting in this. And the court says, well, this is copyrightable because there's a creativity here, there's, there's judgment being exercised. I wonder if when you say, you know, that one view of authenticity from within this community is the artist doing something by hand, whether that's the idea at play or is it something different than that? Is it something deeper than that? Um, Amy and I actually have this agree, I think that all of this has so little to do with copying and copyright law that that is in itself very interesting. I don't know if we've really worked out why copyright or you have Amy why copyright doesn't apply, but I would go so far as to say that even in the Daffin condition, there is like no copying. Uh, did you notice in the video, they're not looking at anything when they're doing assembly line. So they are copying themselves, right? Um, but they aren't copying a painting that you can identify, nor are they physically looking at something to copy. Um, and in fact, my Van Gogh, the Van Gogh painter, the teacher, he would always say, do not look at the thing that you're copying from, it will make for a bad painting. Um, that was how he taught me. Um, so I think that there is like also um, where we imagine the transformation to have happened or where we imagine the creativity to have taken place is made um, fragile by their practice. It's not all of them would agree that what they're doing is art, in fact. Uh, many of them don't think so. Um, so, and they would distinguish between work for order and work for myself, some, you know? Um, and so I, it, there's a danger in taking the craft side too far, right? Of imputing to this kind of craft-like practice authenticity. Does that? And so just uh, before Jessica's question, I, I was really compelled to give you a sense of the richness of the book. You dwell on this phrase, uh, stop looking at the gao, or I don't mean to mispronounce it. <laughs> and it, you talk about how um, instead it's to paint freely, loosely, and spontaneously, and to simply aim for a good painting, as you were just saying. And then the dealers the, in um, Amsterdam, furthermore, don't care really about how good of a copy it is. They themselves are looking at it and thinking, is this a good painting? And I was really carried away by that, but I think maybe because I was raised in like a Western aesthetic tradition where, yeah, that's, that's the real value there is that particular <laughs> painter's creativity, not simply the mechanical copying, but the expression of the personality or something. Yes, that is possible every time you make something. And I think we know this when we knit or something yeah. or whatever hobby you have, you know that when you do it, even if it's repetitive, that something else happens. It's like the connoisseur, there is some other knowledge we haven't quantified, right? And yet, you know, the history of art is the history of, you know, endlessly distinguishing art from craft, or at least the, the history of art for the last 500 years or so, but the craft is the sort of, the thing we're not doing, whatever we do, it's not craft. So it's very, uh, your painters are kind of troubling that distinction that is at the heart of the definition of art. Jessica. I wanted to ask about art restoration. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, the difference, so the role of authenticity in art restoration. I was in Greece this summer and a lot of the art has been restored by 
putting color back on the marble statues, which is very striking. And um, they, they had exhibits that were trying to teach us to see these marble statues very differently than we've that any of us have been taught, sort of reteaching history and um, uh, and race and all of that. In and uh, and so I started thinking more about the people who do the art restoration, what their what their reference is for that, and what the what the code of ethics is. I mean, so if we're wondering about like the authentic painting and you're restoring it or you're cleaning it, I'm just wondering what the relationship is between those practices and the idea of the authentic work vis-a-vis -vis, like the difference between the Flavin or the Dauphin stuff like that. Yeah, um, great. So so two things. First of all, I mean, I, I don't know in, in particular with those works, but I know that that what restoration means is hotly debated. I mean, I think it's at the heart of why there's not certainty about the Salvador Mundi, the, the Leonardo painting that was the, you know, the $500 million painting, whatever. Some people wonder if the restorer went too far thinking it was a Leonardo and kind of, you know, she knew Leonardo so well, was she kind of taking it a little bit too far and making it look like it? What Was it his work or what, or did she make it look to be his work and it wasn't? Um, but I will, so, so these questions are, are, you know, constantly debated with restoration and, and the ethics of restoration ship. I will just say, you know, talking about those those old sculptures, I think we can see the fiction of authenticity, how fictitious it is. We think uh, Greek and Roman sculptures are white. Of course, they're white. That's the color of antiquity to us. But that's just a fiction because the, the paint has been stripped away. And we I haven't seen the show yet, but I'm sure when I'll walk in, I'll have the reaction of like, what? This is wrong. You know, this is this is not authentic, and and it just I think shows again the instability of the of the concept. Can I just plug a book um, uh, on conservation? Um, this is uh, Fernando Dominguez Rubio. He wrote a book called Still Life: Ecologies of the Modern Imagination at the Art Museum. It's a study of MoMA's conservation department, and uh, he explores how a conservator decides which drip um, from on a Pollock painting is an intentional drip and which oh is a, <laughs> which is a drop of coffee. Oh it's wonderful. Well, That's we'll have to conclude there. There's a passage in Amy's paper where you, you refer to a case involving Warhol as itself Warhol's last work. <laughs> like the litigation was his posthumous work. And I'd like to think that we're, we're a little bit part of an aesthetic tradition, even in this discussion. Uh, we're carrying on these same questions that are unanswerable, but important to keep asking. So uh, thanks to Amy and Winnie for this discussion. The Engelberg Center Live podcast is a production of the Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law, and Policy at NYU Law and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Our theme music is by Jessica Batke and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license.